Hey, I'm Morgan from Seattle. I'm Matt from Essex, Ontario. Hey, I'm Dan from Dayton, Mass. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Most people who know Boots Riley know him as the frontman and producer for the hip-hop group The Coup. He's a self-described revolutionary. But for a little while in the early days, he was also a telemarketer. It's all using your creativity for evil, right? (laughs) You know, you think about those ad guys that are there, like at ad companies, and they're all like, would be great artists, and some of them may be geniuses, and, you know, and their whole thing is trying to figure out how to sell you underwear. It's listening and creativity, and it's, you know, it makes you feel very depressed. (laughs) It's Bullseye. This week, why rapper Boots Riley battles capitalism, corporatism, police brutality, and injustice in his lyrics. I feel like the best way to engage with the world is to change it. And Roman Mars changes from wunderkind PhD student. Oh my God, I have to get out of here and do something else. To public radio producer. I like to think of public media as just being a synonym for best media. To crowdfunded podcaster. Often when you you do radio, you kind of don't know how it affects people. That problem has been solved through podcasting. That and a whole lot more this week. Recorded live in my hometown, San Francisco. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, of course, I'm joined by a culture critic to recommend something that's worth your time. And on this episode of Bullseye, I'm joined by, from the San Francisco Chronicle, pop culture critic Peter Hartlob. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. So I thought that since we like to open every show with recommendations, and since we're here in San Francisco, my hometown, we would do San Francisco-specific recommendations. And since you have a wide purview, you pick some great movies based on that San Francisco theme. Uh, The first of them is a movie called The Conversation, directed by a great San Francisco director, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, It stars Gene Hackman, and uh, Gene Hackman plays like a surveillance expert in this. And uh, well, let's take a listen to a clip from the film. Hey, Harry, what do you say we take a break? Come on, we'll go to Al's Trans Bay. I'll buy you a beer. Huh? How about that? No, no, I want to finish this. We thought you'd turn those tapes in. Stan, be quiet, will you? All right, all right. Do you think we can do this? I'm tired of drinking anyhow. What a stupid conversation. Stan, please, I'm trying to work. I'm tired of mostly everything. So what's so great about the the conversation? I, I think it's uh, Coppola's most underrated film. I think it's the it's the best San Francisco film I've seen, just both in terms of you know the 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 way that it's held together, the way that it's held up over the years, the surveillance themes. At the time, everybody thought it was about Watergate, which it wasn't. It was written ten years earlier. But now you watch it and you think it's about a lot of the things going on now. You know, kind of like having your birthday on Christmas. It came out the same year that Godfather Part Two did, so it got overlooked a lot in a lot of the awards. And and uh, with Coppola's films, it's overlooked a lot. But it's a fantastic film, and it really shows San Francisco in a really interesting, great way. Let's talk about one more San Francisco movie, which is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
Um, it's directed by Philip Kaufman, who's actually a, a San Franciscan. Um, the 1970s version is, that uh-huh. is. Um, let, let's take a listen to the movie. Hey, please let us go. We won't, don't don't have we won't don't have to leave the city. Nothing changes. You can have the same life, the same clothes, the same car. But what happens to us? You'll be born again into an untroubled world. Free of anxiety, fear. Wait. Hate. David, you're killing us. That's not true. David's right. Your minds and memories will be totally absorbed. Everything remains intact. You've never agreed with him in your life before. What are you talking about? What are you... This is a remake of an equally legendary movie. Um, What was resonant about this movie in 1978 relative to to the 1950s? You know, you look back now and we go and see horror now and it's either slasher, it's torture porn. This was psychological. Um, the sound design is fantastic. And I mean, just everything about it is about creating this mood. And it uses a city to advantage to the foghorns. I mean, it, it makes San Francisco feel claustrophobic. And this is a claustrophobic place. And Philip, Philip Kaufman, I think, was smart enough to use that in his horror film and uh, fantastic film. I mean, the best invasion of the body snatchers. So you gave us a couple of ideas for uh, San Francisco films to talk about today. And it seems weird to me that you did not include Star Trek Four. So maybe you could explain uh, yeah. why Star Trek Four. Do you have something against whales, for example? Absolutely not. No, no. It was on the short list. And I have nothing against that uh, giant space Duraflame log that was threatening our... <laughs> Culture. Um, I almost picked that one. I, I shouldn't give this away now, but my, my white whale as a journalist is tracking down the guy who played the punk rocker <laughs> on the Muni who Spock, like, death grips. And I want to do an oral history of that whole scene. Just Spock on the Muni crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, of course, and death gripping the punk rocker. The guy who played that is actually a puppeteer for the Muppets, and he wrote and recorded the song that is playing on the boombox. So. Because they had him playing like a Twisted Sister song or something like that when they shot it, and he's like, this is not very punk rock, guys. Yes. I know, know a lot this. about Star Trek IV. You know. <laughs> I don't you know even, this. what's great is I don't even like Star Trek. I just like Star Trek IV. Yeah. Like somehow when I was six years old and me and my dad saw Star Trek Four, and there's a, there's a part where they, they land the spaceship, you know, the USS spaceship from Star Trek, um, <laughs> down in Golden Gate Park. And then, and then George Takai goes, San Francisco, I was born here. <laughs> I just remember being like, oh, I was born in San Francisco too! <laughs> well... Peter Hartlob, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Peter Hartlob, pop culture critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. You can find his writing in the Chronicle and, of course, online. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Roman Mars, is a brilliant radio producer, one of the most brilliant in the country, if you ask me. He calls his show 99% Invisible, a tiny radio show about design. And it is a tiny radio show. It airs for five minutes a week on KALW in San Francisco. But the podcast of the show, which is often much longer, is monstrously popular. Last year, it inspired thousands of fans to give a total of more than $170,000 in the largest journalism Kickstarter ever. On the show, Mars explores questions you'd never think of, like who designs flags or 
Is there a best way to wait in line? Here's a clip from an episode that looked at the design of one of the most utilitarian and maligned of buildings, the airport. Roman's talking about one tiny detail of an airport that's become increasingly important as time goes on. I've never given much thought to shops or restaurants and airports, but the thing I need, not want, what I need when I travel is a place to plug in my phone or a laptop and probably both. There are many, many more banks of outlets. Because again, you think even back to pre-9-11, which is now just about 10 years ago, the ubiquity of personal technology was not... You know, there were Walkmans, right? They didn't need to get plugged in. Now everyone's got something. At every age, every sort of traveling segment. So, of course, older airports don't have enough. I was in O'Hare recently, sitting on the floor next to this businessman, and we were huddled like hobos around a single outlet in this three-gate area. I spoke to Roman on stage at the Punchline in San Francisco as part of SF Sketchfest. I know that you went to college Doogie Hauser style. Um... <laughs> How old were you when you went to college? I was 15 when I went to college. Why did you go to college when you were 15? Well, I mean, I went to this school called Simon's Rock, which is now part of Bard College, which is um, it's an early college that allows you to, if you can test into it in an interview, you can go. And I, I was not doing well in high school, um, not because of grades or anything, but just sort of socially, you might say. And uh, so I was eager to leave. So I left high school after the 10th grade. What did you expect to get out of it? I just, I just wanted uh, a certain type of autonomy. I wanted to read and learn things the way I wanted to. You know, I didn't like the structures of, of school. I just knew it would be, like, my time. And in a way, it, it totally was. Like, I, I mean, the reason why I'm in public radio today is it's just an extension of college, essentially. You just study new things all the time. <laughs> you hang out with people. It's not like a real... You get don't get paid very well. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like college forever, essentially. It's interesting. You, when you went to college, you did something that is completely unlike public radio. Yeah. You learned to be a scientist. Yeah. Did, did you aspire to become a scientist when you decided to go to college? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to study. I like genetics and evolutionary biology and stuff like that. So I studied, uh, ended up studying plant genetics, and I went to graduate school for plant genetics at the University of Georgia. That's like the cool part of the genetics world, right? <laughs> exactly. It, it just, corn specifically, right? Is, That's yeah, what you studied, it, corn? Yeah, yeah, but it's like it, these things happen kind of by chance. So when you, when you study something like that that's pretty specific, you kind of do what the person who does that at the school does. So the, the fellow at Oberlin where I ended up uh, transferring to after Simon's Rock, he was a plant geneticist, and so I learned about plants. I had no real interest in plants before that. But what but. what did you learn about plants? Like, what was the part? <laughs> you don't have to give me your whole thesis, but I'm interested in what was the part of studying plants that you like were interested in enough to like dive into it to the point where you ended up going to graduate school to study it. Well, I. I really, I mean, honestly, I really liked genes. I liked, I liked biology, like molecular biology. So in a way, it was, it was kind of irrelevant to me what it was encased around. And, uh, you know, so one of the plants I studied a lot was this one called Vallisneria americana, which is a, a <laughs> water. favorite. Yes, it's a good, a it's a good one. favorite. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 
but it's a it's a water pollinated plant, which there aren't a lot of. Most of them are wind pollinated or insect pollinated. But it was the vector. You don't have to explain this. Everybody knows this. <laughs> it's a hydrophilus pollinated plant, and there's only and so that I found interesting. There's only like about five of them in well, the that's world. That's irresistible. <laughs> exactly. If it's hydrophilus. <laughs> you should have just said at the beginning hydrophilus. <laughs> Everyone would be like, you just sort of, of seen yeah, a sea like, of yeah, nodding of heads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the audience. So you were actually studying for your doctorate. You were in a PhD program, yeah, right? Yeah. And something must have changed because you are not <laughs> Dr. Roman Mars. Yeah. Um, so what was it that changed? Um, I think I reached that point. Uh, I was a couple of years into my uh, graduate school stuff, and uh, I reached that point where you would normally graduate from college. And I think there's this biological thing that kicks in where you go, oh, my God, I have to get out of here and do something else. I'm a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You've really done your research. Uh, 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 but the... Uh, <laughs> And I was super into like punk rock music and, and movies and stuff. And I was in Athens, Georgia, and um, I wanted to be involved in all that stuff. And so I, I dropped out to do that. And so I helped found the Athens Film Festival and did other things and realized that I, 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 I loved going to college. And when, I, when my classes ended and my teaching ended and I was just doing research, I realized I really hated being a scientist. That's what I want to ask you about, because I remember in sixth or seventh grade in science class when the teacher really seriously explained the scientific method to us. Mm -hmm. And there's a very, it's a very beautiful thing, the scientific method. But when I remember thinking through the consequences of it, and thinking, wow, so what scientists do is just watch the same thing happen over and over again <laughs> until they have statistically significant results? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, why would anyone do that? I mean, yeah. thank goodness that they do, but <laughs> I remember like being completely turned off by this explanation of yeah. science. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I think that they're great, too, but I, I really hated it, and I was bad at it, too. I mean, I wasn't, I'm not, me leaving to do public radio is not a loss to the scientific community. Um, but it, it's... Um, the, the, the main problem is, is like, I was a sloppy bench worker, so that's, like, doing the, the tests. And, and, and there used to be these things, uh, uh, southern blots and northern blots are, like, for... Anyway, I'm going to get too complicated. But basically, there are tests that... Cost, it takes three days to do them, essentially. You, you, you put an assay in, you do the film, you radioactive, all that sort of stuff. And I, know, I knew I would mess up at some point, and I would decide, am I just going to go for it and see if I get a result or I'm going to start over again. And I was always just like, go for it. You know, like that's, <laughs> let's just see if we did it. I was just not, I was not very precise. And so I, I got bad results. I was just bad at it. I was honestly bad at it. And my, my main problem with it is like, if you're a, a person who loves science, you like knowledge and it's cool to read about something and it's cool to sort of like understand the world better. If you're a scientist, you like the stuff you discover, you hold that in a higher regard than the stuff that you just read about. And honestly, all knowledge was equal to me. I could read about it. I could, I could learn, discover it myself. It was irrelevant. And so that was, if that comes to that point, you're like, well, why don't I just read books? It's easier. You know, like, <laughs> you know, so. Um, 
there was a, actually a moment, and I remember talking with you about this once and really relating to it, where it occurred to you to that maybe public radio was a job you could have. <laughs> I wonder if you could describe that moment for the people here. Yeah, I was... Um... I don't know what I was doing at the time, but uh, it was not soon after I left graduate school. But um, I was listening to a ton of public radio because that's what you do when you don't have a job. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and in a very specific cultural cohort. <laughs> it's not like at the unemployment office. They're like, do you have any skills? Okay. And then they write that down. They're like, and you're listening to public radio, correct? <laughs> Uh, I, I was listening to Talk of the Nation back when Ray Suarez was on, and uh, yes, did you, you hear can that? Cheer there was for a, Ray did you Suarez. hear that voice? He right. was, <gasps> so um, I feel the same way. By the yeah, way, no, Ray, Ray Suarez was amazing. I loved that guy, and um, and there was this uh, episode about it was right during the Monica Lewinsky Clinton stuff. There was an episode about heroes, and if the, it was like the thesis was, if the president isn't a hero, um, who are the modern day heroes? Which is a quaint idea, actually, even not that long ago. And uh, somebody called in around the middle of the show and said, uh, "You know what, Ray Suarez, you're my hero." And I was listening to that, and I was like, "Oh my god, Ray Suarez is my hero too." <laughs> and I. I'm going to figure out a way to work for Ray Suarez. And I, I didn't know what that job was. I didn't know there was such a thing called a producer. I had no idea. I mean, I, you could hear the credits, but it doesn't, it's meaningless. I just knew that somebody read books and told him some of the questions to ask. And I was like, that would be the perfect job. And so, um, and, and so that's what I began pursuing. And so I tried every type of internship um, around and, and got rejected for all of them, um, and uh, until I I um, I wrote the general manager of KALW in San Francisco, and uh, her name was Nicole Sawaya, and she was intrigued by my weird background and uh, invited me to come in. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the public radio producer Roman Mars. His show, 99% Invisible, looks at design and architecture and the often surprising ways that they touch our lives. We spoke in front of a live audience at The Punchline in San Francisco. You did a show, I I remember listening to your show, this was before I had ever met you, um, called Invisible Inc., which was, this will date it profoundly, (laughs) but was conceived as a zine for the radio. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Today it would be a tumblog for the radio. <laughs> yeah. um, but what in what inspired you in making that show? No offense, but definitely this American Life. Yeah, well, that's that's right. I mean, it was I I, th- I I remember listening to it and thinking, "Wow, this guy's really taking that this American Life thing to the max." Yeah, it, well, that was exactly. I thought I would. I, I mean, at the time, I mean, I have this um, theory that. Um, that, that stealing plus lack of talent equals creativity. <laughs> um, so, so like, if you if you copy something and you can't do it at all, you come up with an original piece of art, you know. And and, and um and and so that was um that was 
my real stab at that. And, and, and I, but I, I heard This American Life, and I, and I loved it, obviously. It, after the desire to be in sort of a more public affairs type show, I discovered the storytelling shows, and I really loved them. Um, but I also thought, like, you know, like the culture that I love, this sort of the more punk culture and the sort of edgy zine culture and stuff, I thought if I could bring that to the fore and, like, and give it the same attention... Um, what's great about radio is you don't know the quality of the paper. You do not know if it was Xeroxed by someone or if it was published in a book. And so I thought that I could make a radio zine and have it uh, work. You you ended up with these these two jobs, um, one of which was working for the Third Coast International Audio Festival, one of which was curating a channel for PRX, the public radio exchange mm-hmm. of sort of independent radio voices that led you to listen to 12 quadrillion hours of radio because at Third Coast you were sifting through submissions. At uh, PRX you were sifting through all the stuff on PRX to program this channel. And you spent more time with especially alternative public radio, for lack of a better term, than anyone else I think ever has. Um, Did you learn anything about where public radio could go in a, you know, post-this-American-life context? Yeah, I mean, I I do listen to a lot. I still listen to hours and hours of radio a day because I still program the public radio remix channel for PRX. And um, I don't know. I, I think that there's a, a lot of things you can do um, and forms you can use. I'm really excited by, um, a, a, like, a new form of, of a kind of radio theater that sort of fits modern sensibility. There's this great show called The Truth um, that uh, Jonathan Mitchell does. And, uh, you, know, you know, I like using the sort of the tropes, the stuff that we're used to, but just expanding some of that, expanding the music, expanding um, the tone, expanding the idea that um, you don't have to like everybody on the radio. The way public radio, I think, is its biggest problem is that it, is likability is a kind of a requirement. And, and I, I, I like to think of public media as just being a synonym for best media. And, and in that sense, I wish The Wire was a public media. You know, I wish The Sopranos was public media. I think that we should create a system that, that, that that's allowed. Um, the, the, the problem is, is that those characters, a lot of them are not very likable. And that, that sort of shuts that down. So I, I would love to see it expand to all kinds of things. I'm just interested in what is basically the art form of information and however you can do that. Um, I'm really, really open and receptive to it. I'm really interested to talk to you about that idea, the art form of information, because what 99% Invisible is, and 99% Invisible is your show about architecture and design that is extraordinarily successful, the most successful uh, journalism Kickstarter ever, um, among, among many other plaudits. Um, One of the things that's remarkable to me about it is that it is, it it takes some of the kind of narrative and aesthetic uh, choices behind This American Life and the shows that have come since. And whereas This American Life is a show that is very much about narrative and emotion specifically, um, 99% Invisible is about information. You are tr- you are teaching lessons about the world and the things that we don't see in the world in your show. And that is something that's really tricky to do on the radio. What I loved about the idea of doing the show before I started was that it had all these 
problems that you had to solve. And I, I mean, I've been a producer on every type of radio program that exists, quite honestly. And I love the idea of, I hadn't hosted a show since Invisible Ink, you know, a long time before that. And I like the idea of, of using writing rather than just production to, to sort of solve this problem. And, and, you know, one of the things about it is that the, the, the show is produced and conceived in such a way that even though these are sort of very basic facts and they're inanimate objects that you, you sort of, I make it this, like the, the, I kind of like, (laughs) I just sort of like go like, no, really, you got to check this out. You know, like this is like, that's the tone of the show all the time. Um, and, and I kind of make it emotional through, through my joy in these things. And I, I become the surrogate. And I also have a, a kind of a cipher quality that when somebody's talking about something that I interview, they, they can totally seduce me into, into seeing the world that they see it. And then I hopefully bring along the audience to care about something that they would never care about before. I mean, I, I was just thinking about the list of things that I've covered on the show. And, um, if you read that list, it's a very boring list of things. <laughs> you know, like it's not about what they're about. It's the challenge is making that thing interesting to make people care about it. And I love that challenge as a producer. Like that's a great production challenge to solve. Conveying that personal passion is sort of, I mean, that goes back to what so many zines were about. Yeah. I mean, if you think of like great zines, you know, like Dishwasher Pete's legendary zine was about something which is not of interest to anyone, which is washing dishes, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. And what he conveyed was a personal passion about what he was interested in and also finding the universal in that. Right. Well, the, the, um, one of the zines that was a big inspiration for this show was one called Beer Frame, which is by a guy named Paul Lucas. And he now does UniWatch, which is... Um, a website, a great website about sports uniforms. Very devoted to the design of sports uniforms. Awesome. To Needless the, to say, Roman, that is like the perfect dovetailing of my interests. <laughs> you can combine baseball and outfits. Um, it like is someone else has really high opinions about whether baseball socks should be worn high or low. <laughs> yes. No. He he is a he he exercises excessive detail in all things. He's a, he's really brilliant. So that that is inspiration, and that idea of like being able to passionately write about this minutia um, is is part of was part of zine culture, but it's also part of current culture. I think that the connectedness of people online um, makes people much more design aware in general, and people talk about fonts, and people talk about you know people care about these things that I honestly had never really heard people talk about for a long, long time. I remember first time I got to. Um, uh, third Coast, they told me, our communications are done in Helvetica. And I was like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, like, but all of them were, you know, and, and then I began to understand how much people care about this type of stuff. And, 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 um, and it, it was really interesting to me. Your show is a radio show in a four and a half minute format that's designed to fit into this particular hole in public radio schedules. Yeah. It's also a podcast in episodes. I just listened to the newest episode. It's 17 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that speaks to the special things about doing a podcast. You know, there is room to spread out. 
Um, and there is room to focus on something that otherwise might be seen as niche. But the other thing about it that I think is really interesting is that in conveying this information, you're conveying something really rich, really dense, and something that people typically would not try to undertake in audio Mm -hmm. because of the linearity of audio, because you can't go back, because you can't highlight passages, um, because if you miss something, it's gone forever, because you're probably up to something else while you're listening. You know, usually what people do is write at a fifth grade level on purpose um, and try not to have more than one clause in a sentence, try not to have more than one idea in a minute or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in podcasting, you can go back. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I kind of make this show for me and, you know, what amuses me, which I think is the way to do it. But I also do make it uh, dense and have little Easter egg type things to reward the the listeners who are paying attention. And also, I, I kind of want to cut it. Like, I use a lot of music and uh, sound. And I, I want it to be okay if you if you didn't catch everything. It would still kind of sound like a song. And you would be like, oh, that's all right. And, you know, like, and maybe you'd go back and listen to it. And that's really nice quality. But that's so brand new. The history of radio, of what, I mean, like, maybe only about, you know, five, ten years ago, the effort it took for you to hear, to hear a radio program twice was, an, it was like a, a large amount of effort. It was You had to write someone. You had to get a CD. I used to sit next to the guy at WBEZ who made the CDs for, for This American Life and just fulfilled that order. And, um, you know, like it was a really it's, – so it's kind of new and it's kind of fun. And I think it allows people to play with the form. And I think that the new podcasters um, that, that are using a real sound-rich – uh, form of podcasting. I, I think that's it's going to be a really fun time. You are this extraordinarily gifted um, producer. You've made this show that is. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what about me? I, no, no, no. I, I just didn't good. want to embarrass you on your own stage. So <laughs> I want you know I will not be. My in laws are here. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you're an extraordinarily gifted producer, and you've had this extraordinary success. At the same time, um, you are not that much further ahead with this program on the radio than you were when you started it as a local project at KALW in San Francisco. And I wonder if, as someone who cares so much, as I know you do, about this world... Whether you ever just want to like take a machete and just run rampant through <laughs> public radio, tearing down programs and destroying things, leaving a disaster in your wake. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I never no, feel that way, by yeah. the way. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I feel kind of mixed about it. I, I mean, um, the show you know, is a popular podcast. It's a failure as a radio show, quite honestly. Um, you know, and... It is a weird thing to fit in. I mean, I do make a, a version so it's easy for stations to fit in. But I also don't really push it that hard because very quickly, the online audience, which I, I only did after the first few episodes, I even attempt a podcast of it. Um, they just responded so... They were super nice. You know, like in public program directors, public radio... They're not as nice. <laughs> you know, uh, you know and they they just... They have a lot to do. You're just one of a bunch of people beating on their doors. And the, and the main thing about public radio is it's not that 
your thing isn't good. It's that they have to justify taking off something else. That's the big deal. Whereas there's an infinite amount of space online. And so when you start to make something and then there's an audience that really responds and there's an audience that does not respond at all. And that, that in the case, it's like program directors. In the other case, it's just people who listen. Um, and you get a ton of great feedback. And in my case, like a lot of money from people who were listening. And then you begin to make this show for them. And, and that's okay. I mean, I guess the evolution of things. It's still, it, it's, it, it's surprising to me that it hasn't changed very much, even though the show is more popular, that it hasn't gotten on more stations. But I honestly, I, I never make those phone calls. I never do it. It's like partly my fault. I never push it. Well, part um, of it is you just want to do something for the people that, that like you, that right? That care, yeah. No, it's, tr- it's totally true. It's totally true. You know, you're making a zine. You want to send it to the people that ordered it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I can't complain about it because it's, it's going so well. And, the, and the, the people who listen are fantastic. And I get lots of great feedback. And I get to watch the numbers of it. And often when you, when you do radio, you kind of don't know how it affects people. Um, and so that, that problem has been solved through, through podcasting. And I, I, I love that aspect of it. Well, Roman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Roman Mars, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks. Roman Mars is the host and producer of 99% Invisible 8. Frankly, totally amazing public radio show and podcast about architecture and design. You can find it online at 99percentinvisible.org. After a break, comedian Steve Agee reveals why God invented the Internet. And Boots Riley from The Coup explains why his music is about a cause. I feel like the best way to engage with the world is to, be, is to change it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey guys, want to hear longer versions of the conversations on this week's episode? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. And share them with your friends. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show was recorded live on stage at The Punchline as part of San Francisco Sketchfest. You might recognize our next performer from the Sarah Silverman program. Uh, he also wrote for Jimmy Kimmel Live. He's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. Please welcome to the stage Mr. Steve Ag. I, uh, one time, uh, when I was in college, early 90s, me and my friend uh, were, we'd smoked a little pot, and uh, it was, I mean, we were younger. I, I don't know why I'm justifying this. We were in college, okay? <laughs> it's what you do. And uh, so we were a little bit high, and we were having this, we were trying to remember the name of the actress who played the, the receptionist in Ghostbusters. For like for half an hour, and this was—you have to remember this was the early '90s. There wasn't an internet, if we, and so it's like half an hour of us going, "Oh man, uh, uh, don't talk, dude, don't talk." No, it's on the tip of my tongue. And like, if we wanted to know before the internet, we would have to drive to a blockbuster video, rent a VHS, come home, fast forward it for like 15 minutes, and watch the credits and be like, "Oh, duh," but. Um, 
so after like half an hour, we just kind of gave up, and I thought this was really weird. Just out of the blue, my my friend uh, goes, uh, eh, "Screw it, I, I'm going to make soup." <laughs> and this is weird, and it's key because no one ever cooked in my apartment. I was, you know, I was like 19, and uh, so he goes in the kitchen, and I hear my friend like uh, digging around, and uh, all of a sudden, he out of the back of the kitchen, he goes. Hey man, do you have any pots? And I go, yeah, that's it. He's like, what? And I go, Annie Potts, the actress. Her name was Annie Potts. And then it both hit us what had just happened. We were like, what? Like he came out of the kitchen like shaking. He was like, dude, what just happened? And I was like, dude, I don't know. That is insane. Like sweating, trembling, like panic attacky, like. Whoa, man! And uh, <laughs> like, I don't know if you saw the movie Magnolia, Paul, Paul uh, Thomas Anderson. But at the beginning of that movie, they do like these three little vignettes, and where like the the theme of them is like, yeah, this is more than a coincidence. Our story could have been in Magnolia. They, that could have been a vignette in Magnolia. Like, try telling me there's no God after hearing that story. <laughs> I picture God up in heaven, like, watching us going, Oh, come on! <laughs> you idiots! It's Annie Potts! It's Annie Potts! Come on! Uh, I have people to help, and I can't, because now I'm invested in this. <laughs> oh, you guys, it's just Annie Potts. Uh, all right, well, what am I... Okay, uh, I'll, uh... I guess I'll make the little one crave soup. And, uh... I'll, I'll hide the fat guy's pots and and then I'm going to invent the internet because I don't have time for this incidental BS. And that's how we got IMDb, you guys. You're welcome. And that's it for me. Thank you very much, everybody. Steve Agee is a writer, actor, and stand-up comedian. You can find him on Twitter at Steve Agee. A-G-E-E. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the MC and activist Boots Riley. For more than 20 years, he's fronted the Oakland hip-hop group The Coup. Riley's known for taking on capitalism, corporatism, police brutality, and injustice in his lyrics. He is a self-described revolutionary. But unlike many musicians with a cause, he's as likely to be sensitive, funny, and humane as he is to be polemical. The band's new record incorporates some rock influences. Maybe he picked them up during his time performing with Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. The record's called Sorry to Bother You. Here's a call to arms from that album. Land of Seven Billion Dances. Shake it, yeah, we agitate it, yeah, we bump and break it, yeah, we finna take it. Hey, now we gon' work it, yeah, we jam the circuit, yeah, we got the burning. Electromagnetic with a bomb aesthetic But we ain't credit and it got no credit Listen real close to my phonetics The monster is awoke and I hope you fit it This is your first time here, raise your hand If the police come hot to contraband We all leave in a box in a long sedan How you want your name read by the anchor man?
We hoeing out here cause they got chips Like put it anywhere but not the lips Take over, let's clock this Boots and I spoke on stage at the Punchline in San Francisco. Thank you for coming on the show, Boots. It's oh, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So do you think that there is something about being from the Bay Area that made you who you are? Do you think that you would have been different had you been raised in Chicago or somewhere else? Hmm. Well, that's really hard to... I, I'm sure, yeah. We, you know, I think that the Bay Area has a rich history of art and political movement. I mean, so when I was in high school, the the principal, tr- we, we had a walkout, and all the, the whole school walked out. And the principal got on the loudspeaker and uh, started saying, do not listen to Raymond Riley. That's my real name. Anyway, do not listen to Raymond Riley. He's a communist. And everybody was like, and? You know, like... <laughs> You know, so I don't know if that would happen everywhere, but you know, I re- I read somewhere that um uh that like your great musical transformation came that the sort of the idea of the power of music came to you from hearing I think probably somebody who's not that common uh to hear this about for a rapper Prince is that true? Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think when I first saw Prince and I was really into him when I was 12. I I just wanted to be a rock star. Like, well, I want to do whatever he does. I don't want to practice, but, (laughs) and I can't sing, but I want to do that. And I think that's what we get. And every kid watching TV would love to be on TV. It's because we're taught that we don't mean anything. Right. And the, the important people are there on the TV, and your life is insignificant. And I think I went through that period of just wanting to, wanting my life to mean something. But, but you put it into, you know, I want to be a rock star. And uh, later on, I became an organizer, and I started, to, and, and I shed those ideas of wanting to be uh, a rock star. But that's and, sort of the same, that's sort of the same impulse, exactly. the idea of wanting your life to mean something, to become an organizer. Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I felt like my life meant something at that point once I became an organizer. And later on, only did I see that the, that the two were very uh, similar. Um, and the, you know, and that's like the, you know, I make music from that standpoint that this is important. What I'm doing is important. So I, I've never been the kind of rapper that could, you know, just rap off the head because I'm always worried about the fact that these words are going to be there long after I'm gone. Well, I, I want to ask you about how you found hip hop as a teenager. Was it something that you aspired to after you found out you couldn't sing or something like that? <laughs> Now, well, I found out, unfortunately, that I couldn't sing in second grade in front of the whole school as <laughs> singing the little drummer boy. But that's a whole other story. Um, I think hip-hop in, in high school, we all used to beat on desks, and we all used to rap. And it wasn't something that we thought that you could make money at, especially if you weren't from New York or whatever. And, you know, um, so... It was something that I did and, and, and that you just had to do, you know, because it was fun and, you know, it's your turn. 
And uh, so, you know, everyone did that. But but I think that uh, the intersection of it was when I was an organizer and we, we used to go to the Double Rock Projects um, every, like, weekend and, you know, try to get people to do something really vague, like, fight racism, you know, <laughs> whatever that means. And... Um, you know, we'd be talking to people, and we got to know folks there. Well, one one time when I wasn't there, there was a, a an incident that happened where these two this this woman and her two twin sons that were eight years old, um, they all got beaten down by the police, beaten down bloody, and in front of the pro, in the projects, and people saw this and they came out there to to try to stop it, um, and. Just a week before, there had been an incident where the, the San Francisco police had had someone in their car that they had beat up, and they wouldn't take them to the hospital, and they died in in the car. So the the crowd came out and said, uh, you know, and tried to get her away, so get them and the kids away, so they could take them to the hospital. The cops got scared, started shooting up in the air, and uh, if you've ever been next to a gun when it goes off, whatever you were planning on doing before that, you forget and you run. So the whole crowd ran away, and shortly thereafter, they all ran back. And by the end of the night, there were police cars turned over, the cops ran out of there on foot, and Rossi Hawkins and her two sons were taken to the, uh, were, were taken to the hospital. This story got told to us like the next week, and everybody had their own versions of the story, but the part that I told you is the part that everybody agreed on. And then there was one other part which was while everybody was running away, this was the summer of 1989, and the number one song on the radio was Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Somebody started chatting, fight the power, fight the power. And it was explained that everyone knew that this was a moment, that they all were in agreement that there should be something done, and they went back and maybe saved uh, this woman and her kid's life. How old were you then? I was 18, and I dis- at right then, I decided I should get better at rapping and use this in that way. I could see that hip-hop could be a rallying cry. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Boots Riley from the group The Coup. We spoke on stage at the Punchline as part of SF Sketchfest. The group's newest album is called Sorry to Bother You. Here's a song from it, The Guillotine. We want to thank you for flying with us. We know you could have stayed home, just cried and cussed. May all your guns go off if it's time to up. May all the tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into coal. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy ish anymore. Sleep in the doorway, but sit on the floor. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges, and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the
More with Boots Riley after a break. Plus, I'll play a song that never fails to make me think of the Bay. It's Bullseye, on stage at the San Francisco Sketch Fest, from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Have a favorite bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Boots Riley from The Coup. He and I spoke on stage at The Punchline in San Francisco as part of SF Sketchfest. You know, one of the things that I think has always exemplified the music that you've made with The Coup is not just a sense of political engagement, but also a kind of a sense of humanity in that many, uh, in in the world of hip hop, many political MCs are, you know, they have grand divisions and grand styles and can be very exciting, but it doesn't feel like something that is actually about actual people. Hmm. Well, I definitely can say there is a lot of political music, not just hip hop, whatever that I don't like. And just like there's a lot of, other music that I don't like. Um, what moves me is to be able to relate to someone, and so I, I kind of include myself in it um, because, I, I mean, one, that's the best way to write, to make art, is to include yourself and be engaged in it so that um, people can feel engaged with the world. So, yeah, that's what it's about. My, the music that I make is about getting people to engage with the world more. And it can be called political or radical or revolutionary. But the, the, the key step is to want to be engaged with the world. Like You can sit around and watch everything happen and take notes on what happens in the news. And then 20 years later, you're going to be talking about what happened in the world and where you were. And if it was just watching TV or seeing it on the Internet, you're going to feel like you missed out. And you have. And so... Um, I feel like the best way to engage with the world is to be is to change it. You know, if you just snake through it, you kind of were like the person on the wall while the party was happening. Were there MCs that you looked to when you were 18, 19, 20 years old that you really admired? Definitely Ice Cube would be number 1. Uh Chuck D obviously. What about let's let's talk about Cube for a second. Yeah. What was it specifically about Cube that was inspiring to you? Um I think, well, number one, his storytelling. Um, Number two, he was one of the first rappers that were considered a lyricist, that all of us who were into hip-hop, you know, and and were into this certain form of lyricism, 
um, that seemed really detailed and like someone put a lot of work into it. He was the first one with a West Coast accent and that rapped about things that seemed like it at least seemed like that it was from where he was from and seemed, you know, and so uh, that was, there was definitely something to that. There's something, there's something about Ice Cube relative to like a, a, a near contemporary like Rakim where Rakim is, you know, a brilliant lyricist, a brilliant writer, but Rakim is sort of investigating his own sort of inner world, mm-hmm. and Ice Cube is about life in the world and about sort of and also about raging at exterior things. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think there's a certain part of lyricism, and I've gotten caught into. It. And what they call lyricism is something. It's really strange, and it's something like you have to have metaphors and similes and it really does it's like doing backflips like instead of dancing right right to me um and and i've engaged in a lot of that so but i think that that ice cube didn't just prove himself lyrically he also touched on truths and realities that 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 um people could a lot of people could relate to and the folks that couldn't relate to it could actually, you know, could feel some of that truth that he was putting out there. And I spent a lot of time trying to sound like Ice Cube. And I would like, you know, play it to people and be like, doesn't it sound kind of like Ice Cube? And they'd be like, oh, it sounds nothing like Ice Cube. <laughs> and, and I would be jealous of the folks that could sound exactly like Ice Cube. Like, damn, what am I doing wrong? But, I, and then after a while, you just... Learn to be comfortable with yourself. Yeah, I, I, spent, um, I spent a lot of time uh, a couple months ago because I was writing a piece about it was a good day for the show, <laughs> listening to that song over and over. And the thing that struck me about the, sh- about the song, other than the sort of thematic elements, was the way that it is essentially just a list of perfectly observed details of life. And that is something that's really amazing and that wasn't a part of, wasn't a big part of hip-hop before that. I mean, you know, there's lots of um, amazing styles in hip-hop before the early 1990s, but that sort of, that sort of just, this is a life being lived part mm-hmm. was much yeah. less so. I think he did it better in like earlier songs, like Once, uh, Once Upon a Time in the Projects, and there's a lot of songs that he did that in, but yeah. Uh, I think, you know, there's something very literary to Ice Cube's uh, style. And it was being done by a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but uh, he definitely did it in his own unique style that was that inspired me a lot. I, I One of your first hits, I mean, you've, you've never been a, a mass-scale hit maker. You've always been someone with a passionate following. But um, probably the closest thing to a big hit you've had is Fat Cat's Big A Fish, um, which was a song from the early to mid-90s, 93, 94, something like that. Am I remembering 95 that right? 95. Yeah. So uh, there's this, uh, right at the beginning of the song, this line about reflections that I, I was wondering if you could share with everybody. It says, uh, the street light reflects off the on the ground, which reflects off the hamburger sign that turns round, which reflects off the chrome of the BMW, which reflects off the fact that I'm broke. So what the f- is new? 
Let's hear a bit of the song we talked about, Fat Cat's Bigger Fish by The Coup. Almost 10 o'clock, see, I got a ball of lip for property, so I slip my penny on slopper and promenade out to take up a collection. I got game like I read the directions. I'm wishing that I had an automobile as I feel the cold wind rush past. But let me say that I'm a hustler for real, so you know I got the stolen bus pass. Just as the bus pulls up and I step to the river, so lady look like she drank a 40 of fear. I see my old school partner say his brother got popped. Pay my respects, can you ring the bell? We came to my stop. The street light reflects off the sit on the ground, which reflects off the hamburger sign that turns round, which reflects off the chrome of the BMW, which reflects off the fact that I'm broke. Now what the fuck is new? I need new. I swear Humor has always been a really big part of your music. Um, not just not just funny songs. I mean, you do have funny songs. I mean, uh, you have a song called "My Car Is Better Than Your Shoes," mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> wherein the protagonist has a messed up car. Yeah, <laughs> but it is better than not having a car. Yeah. Um, but there's also something about the way that you find humor in the kind of cruel ironies of uh, capitalism and poverty, um, which I think is is a really kind of a lovely thing. Thanks. I, I think that uh, I think that it, someone's job as an organizer or someone that's talking about the way the world works, the job I I, I see how I want how I look at the system is that it's a class system. And there's a there's an inherent irony in the fact that the people that do all the work are not the ones that make the lion's share of the money. There's that's that's a big there there's something ironic to the to to this whole system. Now, your job as an organizer is to point out all those ironies, and that works very well with humor. So there's all these contradictions in our lives, in ourselves, and uh, so it it makes it easy. You know, and and I think that that um, some of the folks that I came up around were like these ex, you know, these British organizers who were like union dudes that came over here, and they were kind of like, you know, they were always joking, and they were like, you know, if you can't share a pint with with someone, how are you going to get them to go on strike? You know, and the way that you know I learned from being around those folks, it was always joking and we were always joking and talking and I think that's just part of my regular language and I, and and I think actually it's part of how everyone communicates but there are these certain conventions that when you decide that you're a rapper many people decide to stay away from um because they think it won't work uh, but I I think I kind of stumbled onto that because some of the lyrics that I used to think were some of the better lyrics were ones that were also kind of funny you know, so like from Lord Finesse and Cool G Rap, we always looked at those as, you know, as being certain turns of phrases that were funny. And I, I think I just, you know, kind of went for that and, and expounded on that. As I was listening to, I, I listened to Fat Cat's Bigger Fish earlier today, and it's a song that is essentially about uh, hustlers thinking that they can, that they've essentially, you know, they infiltrate a group of super rich dudes, uh, thinking that they found the greatest marks of all time. And the irony of the song is that they realize that these guys are the guys who are hustling them. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that also, that song 
and a couple of songs that I have like that came about because I went to film school and I was like, that's costing too much money to make movies. So I'll just do them on, uh, on record. And so it's a long story. And um, I think that that story came about because I actually wanted to write the next song that's on the album, which is Pimps. And I was like, well, how do I get us here? And came up with this sort of convoluted way that also reflected what I, you know, believe in. Your, your new album is actually conceived as a, sort of the soundtrack to a film, um, which is in productions. It's in uh, pre-production. It's, uh, the, so the album is called Sorry to Bother You, and the film is also called Sorry to Bother You. It's a dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction, inspired by my time as a telemarketer. And it's uh, being produced by Ted Hope, who produced 21 Grams and The Ice Storm, American Splendor, a lot of things. And it's being directed by Alex Rivera, who did this movie called Sleep Dealer. So let me ask you this, Boots. Um, do you, uh, were you good at telemarketing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's... You know, it all it, it's all using your creativity for evil, right? <laughs> you know, you think about those ad guys that are there, like at ad companies, and they're all like, would be great artists, and some of them may be geniuses, and, you know, and their whole thing is trying to figure out how to sell you underwear. And so I kind of used my skills for telemarketing. I was so good at it that I could just show up on Monday get all the money I needed and not come back for two or three weeks. Yeah, it's, it's kind of all the same thing. You're listening to people and trying to figure out what they want. And in the case of telemarketing, you're not giving them what they want, but you're make you know, but it, 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 it's listening and creativity and it's, you know, it makes you feel very depressed. <laughs> Boots Riley from The Coup. He and I spoke on stage at The Punchline in San Francisco as part of SF Sketchfest. The group's newest album is called Sorry to Bother You. While he was there, Boots performed an a cappella version of his song Underdog. Boots also performed a couple of acoustic songs with a longtime collaborator and member of the band 10, Eric McFadden, on guitar. To hear those, you can head over to our website at MaximumFun.org or visit our page on SoundCloud. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So what says Bay Area to you? Maybe cable cars, the Golden Gate Bridge, Muir Woods? I'm from San Francisco. I'll tell you what I think of. Maybe it's not what you think of. It's actually a song. I got five on it by the Loonies. Specifically, the Bay Area Ballas remix. For those of you keeping score at home, the Bay Ballas in question are the Loonies, that's Numbskull and Yuckmouth, plus Drew Down, E-40, Richie Rich, Shock G, and Spike One. And of course, Michael Marshall from Timex Social Club, a.k.a. Club Nouveau, on the hook. 
pretty much everybody. In other words, like Nyquil, I drop fever. So either put your fiber, or you got to leave it like Diva. Cause see ya, he get burp and broke a smoke, you slip all day. Go home and buy big drinky with his pretty, then parlay. I got five on the Hennessy, Seagram's or Gordon's. Cause this is how we do it like Montel Jordan. I'm from the Oakland City. Frank Nitty is a donut. I'm blowing it up like Oklahoma. Rap music is about asserting identity where there was none. Who you are and where you're from. It's not just about scenes the way rock is. It's not about a sound. Nobody would mistake digital underground silly funk music for Spice One sinister mob music. It's about a place. Really what it's about is telling the story of your place. Literally putting yourself on the map. Because if you didn't grow up on a back lot in Hollywood or in Woody Allen's Manhattan and Maybe you grew up broke or in a tough neighborhood or whatever. A rap record gives you the chance to say, this is who I am and this is where I'm from. And I am from the Bay. And where I'm from, the dude from Timex Social Club is down with the dude that makes up crazy words and raps off beat. And he's down with the dude from Digital Underground and Tupac used to be their roadie. And they all have respect for Hyro and Hobo Junction and everybody, everybody has a crush on Don from En Vogue. If you ask me, the Bay is raw and revolutionary and sexy and smart and just plain vibrant. And it has no problem reconciling any of those things. It's like Shock G says in the song. Satin for them draws and a pound for the cause. I gotta be down cause new styles is going down. Look around you. Tunes from the loon spread round and round you. Back to get my old on. They let me flow on. The 35 on it. Yeah, I'm on it. Still bringing satin for them draws. Velvet for the mic and got a pound for the cause. That's my outshot. Smoking a 5-4 was 12 o'clock. Sipping a hurricane. Better to smoke on the endo. Rolling up my window. Better go to the land. With a handful of broccoli. When it comes to the sticky, I'm the man. Crush nasty, I'll be hitting the J so hard I earl. Falling on the floor, finna have a stroke. TXC ain't no joke. I got five on everything that's you loaded in smoke. It's PICE about to hit it and crow. What's up, baby? It's me, your boy with the kick that's always tight. You a little short on some ends? Don't worry, I take care of that. I got five on that. I got you. Special thanks this week to the folks who helped make our live show possible. Our on-site engineer, Mitchell Holman, the Punchline Comedy Club, and, of course, the great people at San Francisco Sketchfest. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. 
You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.